0: It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of of Abraham,
1: We have one person, Jesus Christ, but we have two natures. Fully God, the divine nature, and fully man, the human nature. Both natures brought together in one man, Jesus Christ. When we talk about the Incarnation, that's what we are talking about. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. That's what we're making such a big deal about. Last week we saw how the Incarnation reveals to us God's heart. That He moves towards us in the midst of all our mess. That He's proved it in the Incarnation. He's done it in the Incarnation. And this week, we're going to see more about how the Incarnation is the perfect solution, part of the perfect solution to our human plight. That's, that's where we're going. And as we begin, I'd like to tell you a story about a time, one summer, one university summer, I stayed up in St. Andrews, and I got a job as what they called a janny. That is a janny, a janitor. My job? every day was either to open up all the university buildings at 6am or shut them down at 10pm. They gave me a key ring with a lot more keys than this, probably about 45 keys. And I'm sure that on the first day, someone very kindly took me through what each one of the keys did. But could I remember? Could I, could I ever? So I kept every day being faced with these insurmountable problems. Doors. Locked Doors. And it became very clear, very quickly, that not every Yale key opens every Yale lock. Not every chub key opens every Chubb lock. You need the one that has been honed, formed, fashioned, fitted for the lock. Only the, the one that has been fitted for the lock will open the door. The author to the Hebrews says today that the incarnation has been fitted, perfectly fitted to solve our deep human problems. It's been fitted to all the moving pieces, to what God is like and what we are like and the problems that we face. It's there in verse 10. Take a look with me. He says this, it was fitting. It was fitting, perfectly fitting, that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, should bring many sons to glory, uh, should bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This morning, we're going to take a look at how the incarnation was fitting for God and how it was fitting for humanity. Uh, So let's get going with how it's fitting for God. Because on first appearance, honestly, it, it actually isn't, it doesn't seem that fitting that God should become man. It tells us here that God is, it's fitting that God would suffer. That God would die. How can that be fitting? How can it be fitting that the immortal God, the one who's the source of all life, would die? How can that be fitting? That doesn't seem right. Or how can it be right that he would suffer? It's not like anyone can box him on the nose, is it? How can it be fitting that the perfect God would have something added to him or taken away? You can't change God if he's perfect. You can't add anything or take anything away because either he wasn't perfect or you've made him not perfect, right? How can this be fitting? We were trying to get our head around this as a small group on Tuesday in our Bible study, and one of the the best ways we could try and kind of try and articulate it was to think about a, a painter and their painting. We, we were thinking about um, Monet. Imagine a, a Monet painting, the great artist. Imagine if the, the artist, Monet, got into his painting by becoming paint. By becoming paint. We were, we were saying, Do see, that doesn't seem fitting that someone as full of creativity and value and dignity and brilliance, would be reduced to be paint? That doesn't seem right. And we were saying that's kind of like what's going on with God. God, the creator of all things, becomes part of his creation. How could that be fitting with all of his creativity and dignity? And how could that possibly be right? And then we were saying, actually, the, the distance the difference between Monet and paint is way less than the difference between the creator God and his creation. So if we were thinking, well, it wouldn't be fitting for Monet to become paint because it's such a big distance, well, how much more extraordinary and kind of crazy is it that the God of the universe would become a creature within his universe? I've got a little diagram. We're not talking about just distance being the, being the issue. It's not just that it's a long way. Can you see that? It's very small writing, I'm sorry. It's not just that it's a long way. It's that there's a huge category difference between those two things. You see, Monet and paint, in reality, are quite similar. They, they've got lots of carbon in them. They both have colors. They're both part of the created order of things, right? They're part of God's creation. Yet we still think that would be a a weird thing to happen. But do you see how much bigger it is for God, for God to condescend? The God who is not dependent upon anything, doesn't exist within creation but outside it. Yet he comes all that way to become a creature. I ask again to you how is it fitting? The Bible says it's fitting that he did this. How could it be fitting? Well, I want us to take a step, a little step back, and to look at God's nature again to see. uh, In the book of 1 John, God is defined as love. Love involves giving, -giving. self-giving. We spoke about this a little bit last week, but it bears repeating. That is the very nature of God. For all eternity... The Father has been giving, loving the Son. The Father and the Son have been giving, loving the Spirit. They have eternally, always been self-giving and loving. It's their very nature. And so when you come to something like creation, that looks like something really new, brand new, something totally different. Now, of course, creation is new when it first happened it had never happened before but do you see that it fits with God's nature because God gave everything life and breath he gave it life from himself it fits with his very nature to be the self-giving God And so when we look at the incarnation, it's the same. The incarnation seems radically strange, new, different. And it is. It's unique. It never happened before. It will never happen again. It seems radically different. And yet, do we see how it is fitting with God's very nature, His deep Nature, it is his radical self giving that to fix our deepest problems, the Son was willing to take a human nature to himself that he might give his life and his death for us. The one who gave himself out. Into the void for creation is the very same one who gives himself out into our sin ravaged world for our salvation. And so, oddly, oddly, even the sufferings and death of the Son of God as the man Christ Jesus is actually fitting to God's nature. Because it's his radical, it's his self-giving that we see there. It fits. Even as it kind of clashes with how impossible we think it is for the immortal to die, for the unchangeable to have change. The same book that defined God as love gives us a definition of love and this definition of love chimes with this deep nature this is what it says this is love one john not that we love god but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation the atoning sacrifice for our sins how is it how is it that the incarnation could be fitting for god well, because it fits with his self-giving, loving nature. Now, I imagine that isn't exactly the end to all the how questions that there might be going on um, in the room at the moment. Many of us might be asking sort of how, how in terms of the mechanics, how does it work that, that God could become a human How does the DNA work in Jesus? What is his biology? How does the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit with Mary actually work? Uh, Well, I'm going to have a go, sort of, at answering some of that now. It really is a sort of. Um, And we're going to do that by just taking a look at some gifts that we've received from church history. And we're going to take a look at a wonderful hymn that we often sing and some statements from the creeds that we've received. So we'll start with that great hymn, and can it be, by um, Wesley, Charles Wesley. In his second verse, the first line gives us a fantastic steer on how we should do our thinking about the incarnation. This is how the second verse starts, "'Tis mystery all." And so here's the cop-out, but it's not a cop-out, it's the reality when we're asking the questions of how the DNA, how does the overshadowing work, all of that, there is a sense in which we can only get so far before we reach mystery, beyond what our minds can grasp, beyond, more importantly, what God has revealed. It is mystery. The how, but not the what. He's very clear on the what, isn't he? It is mystery all. The immortal dies. How? He doesn't say. But that's that's also the way the Bible works. The Bible is very clear on the what has happened. John 1. 14 tells us that the Word has become flesh. The Word, the one who was God and was with God, has become a human being. The what, very clear. Our passage, verse 9, verse 14, verse 17, very clear, the Son of God has become a human. The Bible, very, very clear. As we read the Gospels, we see Jesus do what only God can do by forgiving a man's sins. And yet... He lays asleep, exhausted, in a boat. He is God and man. The what, very clear. The how, the Bible doesn't reveal. And that's what the creeds that we've received from church history tell us as well. They're summaries of the Bible, what the Bible teaches on the nature of God. And they teach us exactly the same thing they tell us the what, but not the how. And so, one from Nicaea in the year 325. By the way, everyone agrees on these. It's just worth saying. The Roman Catholics agree on these. The the Eastern Orthodox Church agrees on these. The Anglicans agree on these. The Lutherans agree on these. The Presbyterians agree on these. The Baptists agree on these. The Independent Evangelicals in the FIEC, they agree with all of this. This isn't weird. This is what all Christians for thousands of years have believed. That's why we think it's a big deal. What does the Nicene Creed say? Well, basically it says we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's God. He's God. You can't, there's no other way of articulating it. He's God. What else does it say? For us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. What happened? Nailed. How? Don't know. Um, the next one comes from a, about 120 years later. The Chalced- Chalcedonian formula gives us a little bit more. We believe, it says, or teach, that there's one and the same Christ, Lord, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. This is important. Without confusion. They've not been mixed together. Without Um, changed, they've not changed, without division, they've not been split apart or separation, the distinction of nature's in no way being annulled by the union, rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's it saying? God's nature, the Son, without any change, without any reduction, without any bits being chopped off, And his human nature, fully human in every way, have come together in the man Christ Jesus. None reduced, none diminished. And that's why, um, while giving Charles Wesley an A grade, first marks on on verse 2, I've got to give him an F on verse 3. Take a look at verse 3, he says this. He left his Father throne above, excellent so far, so free, so infinite his grace, excellent, thank you, emptied himself of all but love. Hang on. That must mean that he's stopped being God somehow, if he's emptied himself of everything that is his divine nature other than it's love, right? And that can't, that's not what the creeds say, that's not what the Bible says, so Charles got that one wrong. And that's why many people now sing a line that's like this. He humbled himself in all his love. Because that tells us the why. The why he did it. His love. His love. It doesn't tell us the mechanics. It doesn't stretch into the mystery. It tells us the why. And the why is this. Amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be? That Thou, my God, must die for me. You see, when we see it, see that, we can do nothing but worship Him. Why is it fitting that the fitting for God? Why is the incarnation fitting for God? Well, because it fits with His deep nature, His self-giving love. Uh, I'd now love us to consider how the Incarnation is fitting for us, how it's a fitting solution to our human plight. And here's the answer in short. Because man has ruined everything, a man must restore everything. We spoke about this last week. But because man has exchanged the glory of God for garbage and therefore subjected us all to the terrifying shadow of death, a man must restore us and undo death. And this passage in Hebrews tells us how this happens in two ways. Here's the first. He makes atonement for sin. It's in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Son had to be made human so he could make atonement for sin. What's going on here? Well, in the Old Testament, when God's people sinned to be made right with God, they needed a priest. They needed someone to come from within their own people. To say sorry to God. That priest needed to be qualified. Qualified by being clean. And they were qualified through ritual cleansing. There's someone coming from their side to say sorry to God. And they do that by making a sacrifice. A bull, a goat, an unblemished animal. And in doing so, they would say sorry to God. They would pay the price for sin and wash the guilt away. Hebrews is telling us that all humanity need a priest to make atonement for their sin, for their garbage. All of us. And so to follow the pattern, he must be human. Because we must come from our side of the relationship to say sorry. If he is fully human, then he can be our priest. If he's not fully human, he can't be. That's the logic of verses 14 to 17. Verse 14 tells us, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took it so that he could defeat death. Verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. What's the point of that? Well, he's saying, look, he's a human, therefore he's a high priest for the humans. He's not an angel, therefore he can't be a high priest for the angels, right? Well, Jesus Christ has become fully man without any change in his humanity, without any reduction in it. It's not just a bit man. It's not God with a sprinkling of humanity on top. He is fully man. Therefore, he can be our high priest. And he was qualified. He was clean. Not by virtue of some ritual cleansing, but by living the perfect human life. Loving God and loving man at every point So he could offer sacrifice, but not bulls or goats. His own blameless, blemishless life. And as he died, as he died, he was saying sorry to God for us. He was paying the price of sin and he was cleansing us from all sin. Because he is a man, his sacrifice is acceptable to God. But if he was only a man, If he was only a man, his his sacrifice could only cover one other person. But because he is the God-man, because he is also the immortal God, his sacrifice is able to cover and pay for the sin of every single person who comes to him by faith. The incarnation is fitting for us humans because it is the only way, the only way that we could have atonement made for our sin, for the garbage, and be made right with God. Here's the second reason that the author to the Hebrews gives us as to why the incarnation is fitting for humanity. And it's because it brings us through death to glory. It brings us through death to glory. Verse 10 tells us what Jesus' mission is. Take a look with me. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. That was his mission, to bring sons and daughters, people to glory. That's what his mission was. And it's not the first time that we've seen that word in our passage. Last week, we spent quite a bit of time thinking about this. That that word, glory, comes in the poem beforehand. It's there to explain what humans were originally meant to be like, the way we were supposed to be, glorious, crowned with glory, bearing the image of the glorious, eternally loving God. That's the way we were supposed to be, reflecting God's glory and love, His self-giving nature. We were meant to be rightly related to God in love and rightly related to each other in love. Jesus' mission, do we see? Jesus' mission was to bring us from garbage to glory. It was to restore our humanity. How did he do that? Well, he did it by taking our humanity and living it perfectly, gloriously, at every point. See, at every point that we failed, he succeeded. Where humanity has failed, and each one of us has failed with emotions, with our emotions or intellect or will or, or humor or physicality or, or soul, mind and strength. Wherever we failed, he succeeded. He lived it perfectly and gloriously so that every moment from embryo to adulthood, through every season of his life, he lived it perfectly towards God and man. He lived the glorious human life the way it was supposed to be lived. He took our whole humanity to redeem it to restore it, to glorify it all. That's why this chapter is so emphatic that he took on everything in our human nature. He wasn't missing bits out. He, verse 14, partook of the same things. Verse 17, he was made like his brothers in every respect because he is redeeming, glorifying, restoring it all. I wonder if you see the logic. You see, if there was any part of our humanity that he didn't take, whether it was our mind, our soul, or our body, then that part wouldn't be remade. It wouldn't be restored. It wouldn't be glorified. It would be left in the garbage. It would be left overshadowed by death. But Jesus took it all because he thought every single part of it was valuable and worth restoring our humor, our intellect, our physicality. He thinks it's all worth it. So he took it all on and lived it perfectly, lived it gloriously, and took our humanity gloriously lived, perfectly lived, and he took it all the way. He took it all the way into, into the shadow of death. He took it all the way to the cross. He tasted the bitter sting of death for us. Till He experienced all of human death laying in the tomb. And yet, and yet, verse 14 and 15, neither death, nor the one with the power of death could hold him. He defeated them both. He was raised to life, smashed through it all so that we might be freed from its fear. And now, ascended, his perfect, glorious humanity is alive with him forever. And his desire is to share that humanity with us He's the, this chapter calls it, he's the the founder of our salvation, the, the pioneer, the first to smash through death into glory. And he offers that same glorious remade humanity to all of us who would come to him. That means for each of us. For each of us, as we face death, if we're trusting Jesus, we do it joined to him. We do it joined to him in such a way, his, death, sorry, his life in, that has defeated death, we're joined to him so that we will follow him. We know that as we go through death, we will pass through it and we will be raised to that same Glorious, remade humanity. And so death for us who believe is no longer a terrifying shadow that swallows everything. It is now the gateway to glory. That is what it has become. Because Jesus has taken our humanity, lived it perfectly, and taken it to the heavenlies. Death is no longer the terrifying shadow, but the gateway to glory. Uh, Nanny June uh, is Josiah, my little boy's, or both my little boy's great-grandma. And yesterday she, uh, was, she left hospital under palliative care. Um, her body is very frail. And her mind is much diminished. And even the sparkle is dimmed in her eye. But for about a year, she's been talking to Joss. And she's been saying to him, I'm ready, you know. I'm ready, Joss. I'm ready to go and be with Jesus, to be in glory. And that's because she knows. She knows this. She knows that Jesus has taken her humanity, our humanity, into the heavenlies. And that what awaits her is that same glorified humanity, that same future. She knows that her body will be remade, that her mind will be restored, that the glint will sparkle again. Because of what he's done she knows this is why the incarnation is fitting why it's been perfectly fashioned as the key to unlock the gateway to glory to to save us from our plight because it fits with God's nature his self giving love. And it fits for us as the only way that our sin, our garbage could be atoned for and the only way that we can pass through death to glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible wisdom displayed in your Son. We praise you for your astonishing love that you would do this. We thank you for the sure and certain hope that we have that all sins forgiven, we will move through death to glory. Amen.